You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. magical hour when we tell you all about the things you should or shouldn't be watching in your very own home. Ooh, that sounds scary. It's like we're in the room with you. <laughs> well, I'm not watching most of these again, that's for sure. Uh, no, yeah. But there's some good ones here. There's yeah. a few nuggets uh, in those turds somewhere. You just have to pick until you find them. No, there's definitely some really good stuff we have on the show this week, and there's some really mediocre stuff. So, uh, you know, we in were... a bad week, when the worst thing I can say is a movie's mediocre, that's pretty good. This is a, a lot better better list than the last show I did with Joe. I felt yeah. bad. I handed him a stack of clunkers. I was like, sorry. <laughs> uh, um, this one actually has some really fun ones, and we hope that if you like some of these and you're thinking about buying them, you use our Amazon links there on the actual page on oneofus.net. If you click on the images of the movie we're talking about, where we have helpful little time codes on them in case you want to skip around in the podcast, it'll bring you to the Amazon page where you can buy said movie, and if you do that, we get a kickback, and boy, we could use that kickback. I tell you what, because running this site is expensive and it's like an 80 hours a week job yeah. <laughs> it just never stops getting more and more busy um as well if you buy anything on amazon as long as you start from our links like click on our link and then from there go wherever you want to buy whatever you want we get a kickback from whatever you end up buying so that is very helpful as is becoming a subscriber the number one way you can help one of us.net stay alive and really can't emphasize enough how big a difference that really does make. Tell I mean, the good people what they get, Chris. What do they get if well, they subscribe? Well, we have a whole bunch of bonus podcasts that are on there and videos and all sorts of stuff. And we're constantly adding more stuff to that. But uh, the, like I said, the number one thing is just you're, you're helping us pay for all the shows that you already love. So even if you're just, you know, like, well, I can't afford to do very much. If you put in $2 a month, just $2 a month for guys, the lowest tier, $2 a month. Not only do you get a weekly show of all the movie news and and uh, trailer reviews just for you, but you uh, also are making a huge difference. If like a hundred of you out there that listen and aren't subscribing said, "I can afford two dollars a month," Jesus Christ, you're you're you. I mean, that's nothing to you. You'd barely, you wouldn't even notice it was gone. And NPR yet we would really less. notice. Yeah, exactly. And it keeps Chris off the street. That's the important thing, because you don't want him wandering around naked and depraved in your neighborhood. It's best for all involved if he just stays here. I don't want to go back to dealing bath salts. <laughs> all right. With that being said, let's move on to what you actually came here to hear, which is the reviews. And we're going to start off with one I suspect a lot of you guys have already seen, since we tend to have kind of a geeky audience, much sure. like ourselves. And uh, one of the big hits in the theaters this year was, of course, the Lego Batman movie. This being the follow-up to Phil Lord and Chris Miller's triumphant The Lego Movie. Yes. And although they were not uh, directing this, they were involved as uh, producers here and um, consulted on the script. But yeah, this got Chris McKay from Robot Chicken Mm -hmm. uh, fame to come on and be the director, which makes a lot of sense on paper, right? You're like, yeah, of course. That guy's used to doing this type of meta humor with like animated... Absolutely. Um, I, I will say, as much as I did enjoy this movie, 
it did feel more like an episode of Robot Chicken than it did the Lego movie. It did. I actually watched this with a friend of mine who surprised me by going, oh, I'd like to see that. Really? She's like, oh, I heard it was good. I'm like, okay, that's not the movie I thought she'd want to see, but sure, come on over. And we enjoyed it. But we both sat there realizing afterwards, you know what? We are not kids. And kids today must have, like, the world's just shortest attention spans because this is just joke after cut, after sequence, after gag, after it's a hell's a poppin' kind of never stops for for breath uh, kind of experience. But it is a lot of fun, and it's one of those rare th- times when somebody actually figures out uh, where somebody at least acknowledges that everybody in the audience included is kind of sick of Batman shit. And that's what was fun about it. It's finally everybody going, you know what, Batman? You've kind of become a dick because it's a kid's movie. They don't call him that. But we realize that <laughs> Batman has become just so self-involved, so self-centered, so omnicompetent, and so emotionally cut off. Everyone's like, you know what? We're not even going to be villains anymore. It's no fun. We all quit. We're giving ourselves up. And, of course, magically, overnight, crime disappears from Gotham, and Batman is just left with nothing to do but him deal with his own issues. And it's all done in a very fun, uh, crazy sort of way. Uh, the Lego Batman movie, uh, or the original Lego movie, as much as I liked it, I think everybody thought, you know, the real standout was Batman. Yeah, well, I mean, you get Will Arnett voicing him, yeah. which is one of those, wow, how come nobody asked him to do Batman before? He's right? got the perfect voice for it. Yeah, a lot of people are now like, he's my favorite Batman. And now he's in His voice yeah. is so perfect. So it's, it was a no-brainer to make him be the spinoff here. And much like the Lego movie, they bring in... Every other property they own. I mean, right. Eddie Izzard shows up as Lord Voldemort from uh, from uh, Harry Potter. Which is bizarre because Ray Fiennes is in the cast. I would have just paid him double. He was say. already there. Uh, <laughs> Seth Green as King Kong. Jermaine Clement as Sauron from from Lord of the Rings. Uh, lots of crossover stuff, like I said, just like that other one. Um, and Daleks lots and, and lots Clash of the Titans. Lots and lots and lots of like familiar characters. Yeah. As well as the one thing co- I thought they did was really cool is they got Billy D. Williams to play Two Face because yeah. his story of never actually he never to got to play Harvey Dent, as was he was contracted to after Tim Burton's first Batman. Yeah. Very sad tale, and I was glad to see he finally got to come full full circle and do it here. Conan O'Brien as the Riddler, Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman, uh, Kate Micucci as Clayface, Doug Benson as Bane. I mean, this is a really, really solid cast of people. And introducing uh, Robin being played by Michael Sarah, who is sort of like the... The, the thing that breaks Batman from being right. all gloomy eventually after lots and lots of resentment. He finally becomes allows himself to become close to someone. And it had to happen sooner or later. I mean, this is funny, no question, but it is definitely like a robot chicken sketch that goes on for too long, in yes. my opinion. It's it's still, I mean, it's funny to the end, but there's a point you go from laughing out loud to just kind of mildly chuckling a little bit. Yes. Because you're like, all right, this is kind of all at the same level of humor. It's it's largely referential Batman jokes. Lots of deep cut Batman jokes. Oh, yeah, there's a lot. And there's a lot, and even though they couldn't have known this at the time, because this came out around the time... Uh, the DVD did, uh, around the time of Adam West passing, yeah. there's a lot of love for the 60s Batman Absolutely. in this. There's a, and they just come back. There's a lot of returning gags about the funniest line in this movie is, we are going to hit these guys so hard, words will literally manifest themselves above their heads. <laughs> and I cracked up because my friend was like, why is that funny? I'm like, it's funny because if you ever watched the 60s Adam West Batman, you know that was the best part of every episode. Uh, it's charming. It's fun. 
Uh, it's sweet. It goes on too long, and it's at such a fast pace that a lot of these gags, even though they're good, don't really get a chance to land. True. But again, it w- this is not a movie made for me. It was a movie made for an, the eight-year-old me who's full of sugar and <laughs> is just true. wants to get to the next bit. We do recommend you eat three bowls of Lucky Charms before Absolutely. you watch this Absolutely, and then drown it down with some, uh, chase it with some Count Chocula milk. Um, there's, of course, a lot of bonus features on this, much like there were the Lego movie, including a whole slew of new animated shorts that tie into the movie. Like, there's Dark Hoser that asks, is Batman Canadian? There's Batman is just not that into you, with Harley Quinn having an interview show on Arkham CCTV. There's Cooking with Alfred, which shows the secret history of the Bat Monkey. Uh, um, and movie sound effects, how do they do that? With uh, Bane, Riddler, Poison Ivy, and Catwoman taking turns at making laser sounds, strangely enough. Uh, there's a, a short for the next movie in this series, the Lego Ni- Ninjago. There's a little short that's sort of a lead into that called the or Ninjago? I, 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 don't Ninjago. I don't think it's a w- real word anyway. I think I, it's I a think brand so. word they made up. Uh, there's four <laughs> deleted scenes. There's a whole series of little feature, very short featurettes uh, about the making of this thing, um, including one that's really cute with the cast reacting to their action figures, which is kind of fun. <laughs> All the promotional material is here, which is always, despite the fact it's one of those eh, unessential things, I'm always glad when they do that because yeah. sometimes stuff like this has really funny promotional material. And it prevents like, them from double dipping somewhere down the line. It's like, here's everything now. Uh, and then, of course, a director and crew commentary. So, yeah, very, very good stuff overall. Maybe not as good as the Lego movie, but still a, a pretty worthwhile follow-up Absolutely. to it. All right, so now talk about double-dipping. Disney is once again re-releasing their classic film, Bambi, which was uh, released in 1942 with being the fifth Disney animated feature film. Not many people realize this, but it was kind of a bomb when it came out. Yeah. In fact, Disney had a real tough period for a while with their movies, uh, you know, after their initial huge success with, like, the first two. it They started losing money a lot. And it, it's interesting, going back to seeing the reasons why, Bambi it was partially because it was really controversial that Bambi's mom was shot, okay. A. So a lot of people were talking smack about it then because of that. And B... Hunters had a much, and the NRA had a lot of power then, and they were like, this is an anti-gun, anti-hunter yeah. movie, and we're offended by it. And they were spending money to talk out about it and everything. I've never but, quite heard that angle of it. Uh, I do know that it was also during the period of time when, you know, Disney was having a lot of internal issues with, like, labor disputes and unions, and also World War II was around the corner. Uh, it, it, you know, it was a tough time all around, uh, but... Regardless, yes, is it a double dip? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, this has been on the, like uh, two years ago. They really right. released this on Blu-ray. But so. now, oh, it's the 75th anniversary. So now is the time. There's some new features, but frankly, the new featurettes are strictly aimed at kids. They're very brief. Yeah. Uh, the really meaty features, and which is what you want in a film like this with such a classic. Uh, the really meaty stuff is all ported over from the original. So if you want Not already, all of it. Some of it is, all, in fact, the bulk missing. Of it. The bulk of it is is on here. Um, uh, the stuff that's missing is interactive galleries, Disney's second screen, and Disney's big book of knowledge. Those are on the original. So if you're a Disney completist, maybe you don't want to get rid of your previous copy yeah. quite yet. The actual uh, big book of knowledge and the second screen were pretty big features overall. So it's like, okay, that's a... That's a pretty big thing to leave off, but they made room for uh, archival sound clips and footage 
that are interspersed with scenes from the film to show how the different sequences were animated uh, and how they were trying really hard to make the much more realistic animal characters than they previously had in studio stories, Bambi. There's uh, deleted scenes, which does have some scenes we've never seen before on previous mm-hmm. releases, as well as one Ice and Snow, which we saw, but now here's a much better, more fleshed out yeah. version of it. There's also a little collectible uh, postcard with stand uh, by a... A beautiful little watercolor by Tyrus Wong, as well as a little feature on him. That was, to me, as someone who has kind of an arts background, that was one of the more interesting aspects. How this guy uh, on the Disney team, you know, he was just doing cell animation, and they were like, why aren't you? And then they saw some of his paintings, and like, why aren't you in, like, the background painting department? Why are we wasting you as an in-betweener? And little did he know at the time that, you know, the look of his uh, very kind of Chinese-inspired watercolor art would really impact... Uh, the overall design of the film. Once Disney saw it and said, you know, this is the look of the film, it was very uh, impressionistic and yet, you know, allowed for a lot of realism and depth. And honestly, I had forgotten how beautiful this film is to look at. Oh, it's gorgeous. And, and this is a period of time where really, what, what, what was it? It was like his third or fourth one? I mean, it's you his have fifth one. Snow White, you have uh, Fantasia, you have Dumbo, you have Pinocchio, you have. Ben- this is a period where every single film that uh, Disney made yeah, it was, was an innovation. It was Snow White, which was extremely well-received. There was Pinocchio, which was extremely well-received. There was Fantasia, which was a complete and utter bomb, yeah. but now is looked back at as one of the masterpieces of animation. Uh, Dumbo, which was, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was also not a big hit. Bambi was not a big hit. Uh, there was a bunch of other stuff. That and he did a whole bunch of shorts. A bunch of stuff that hasn't even... Yeah, yeah, exactly. But a all those shorts, shorts helped I mean, build up the money to make these big, daring It really features. wasn't until Cinderella years later that yeah. they like had another big hit on their hands but Bambi is now looked back uh, on as a major classic uh, and definitely something that dramatized a lot of us as children <laughs> uh, there's also like an Oswald the Lucky Rabbit sketch in here which is one of the very pre Mickey Mouse uh, mm-hmm. versions that was out there in the earliest pre Disney days from Walt Disney uh, yeah, you know, once again, if you already have it, I don't know if it's worth double dipping for unless you're a fanatic, but it's, it's you know, if you are one, then there it is. Let's talk about something very different, and that is Evil Ed. How this 1995, like, bizarre splat stick horror comedy completely got by me. I'll have no idea, because this is exactly something I feel like I would have watched and probably liked better back then yeah, than yeah. I do now. Um, it, it was, I, I think part of it, it was involved in a major controversy with the Swedish Film Institute and the Swedish uh, Swedish uh, censure, censure board mm-hmm. the, uh, it was there was a it went on for like 10 years of like fighting to get a yeah. bigger release for it this got film on the video apparently. nasty list on yeah. a lot of places which is ironic because the whole point of the film uh, this is a bunch of filmmakers who were you know some young talented guys they all had a little knack for doing you know special effects and things they had made one feature before it got nowhere and they decided for our next film, we are not going to spend any money if possible. We're going to make something for dirt cheap using every resource we have, call in every favor. And they did us. And because did we they say the name, us, by the way, huh? did I say the name? Yeah. Evil Ed. OK. Just uh, sure. But interestingly, Evil Ed, they took that name later. But originally it was called The Censor. And it is uh, about film censorship, kind of. At least that's the starting point. Uh, Ed is a mild-mannered editor who works for a big distribution company. One day, as we shortly find out at the beginning of the film, 
their editor in their splatter department, they have a whole splatter department, uh, <laughs> let's just say he's no longer on the job, and Ed is transferred to the splatter division. His job is to cut these films, particularly a series of films called Loose Limbs, which has something like eight installments. Yeah, they're just a, it's just a splatter gore series. Yeah. It's one of those, like, it barely has a plot. It's just there to please the gore hounds. And his job is to trim out all of these scenes in order to get these films uh, commercially distributed in various markets. The, pro- the reasoning being, well, you know, some people have determined that these scenes are so intense they could disturb people. Poor Ed has to watch this stuff all day over and over and over, and sure enough, it drives him insane, and he goes on a murder spree. Yeah, which is directly a mockery of the censorship board saying, is this seriously what you think is going to happen? (laughs) Exactly right. And, you know, what's really interesting, this is a dumb movie, okay? Make no mistake. It is gloriously dumb. It is overly the top, uh, bloody. it's so full of references to the films these guys grew up on, with everything from Reanimator to David Cronenberg films to uh, the works of Peter Jackson and so forth. The thing that kind of sets it apart, and I think why its sort of cult status has emerged, is because these filmmakers were smart enough to know that to get a wide release, this film needed to be made in English. These are all Danish guys. They speak pretty good English, but they wrote a script in a language that was not their own had the actors perform this dialogue in a language that was not their own, and then hired like five people to come and redub everything in slightly better American-sounding English. And it is, sounds so weird. There is so many bizarre intonations and bits of dialogue that sound very stilted that after a while it kind of becomes hilarious. Uh, but it's, you know, I mean, it is itself a movie like the Loose Limb series within it. It's yeah. a video nasty gorehound film that just is sardonically casting an eye at, at the mm-hmm. censor board, which isn't really, you know, doesn't really hit if you didn't realize that's what was going on here. But, I mean, it's mildly amusing. Yeah. I, I was like, okay, there's some decent gore here, but, you know, that's creative. But the storyline is imbecilic, oh, no. it's a, it was, as is the dialogue. It's not a good movie, but it is an means. interesting, it's it's a very competently made curiosity. And Arrow's putting this out, loading it down with special features. Three discs, there's, no less. Uh, there's op- no, it's just two. Oh, really? Yeah, I they mislabeled. They mislabeled. three. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, I should say, yes, with Arrow, of course, putting a lot of love into a film that probably doesn't deserve it. But one thing that they do, apart from giving you a uh, the special edition, get it? Yeah, uh, which is the, the they went back and re-edited it and like included presumably even more gore and yeah. what have you. Uh, the best thing on this, better than the movie itself, this is one of those rare kind of worth the price of admission uh, bonus features, is a three-hour long making of uh it was the 90s people had camcorders and they recorded a bunch of stuff and these guys were not thinking in terms of like special features back Mm -hmm. then but they were just recording a lot of stuff and you know everybody involved in the film you know from the actors to the cast to the crew uh have come in for uh for to sit down and do interviews and they all look back pretty fondly on this, uh, even though the actors today are still kind of grumbling about how they never got paid for anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, I still never made any money. And this got sold in like 80 different countries. But they all had a great time. And it's a really interesting look at a bunch of young filmmakers and the struggle they made to make the kind of movie that they enjoyed watching and working under some really horrible conditions. 
and uh, you know, just bizarre things happening. But that's not even all yeah. they added. There's a whole series of really lengthy featurettes on every yeah. aspect of the making of this film. Oh yeah, talk about. <laughs> overkill for, for like a minor little movie, but Arrow likes to do it up right, and I know this movie definitely has its big fans out there, so this is the ultimate edition of this movie, including 21 and a half minutes of deleted scenes, including yeah. commentary of why they deleted them, and whole storylines, in fact. That's just crazy. A whole thing's on the reconstruction of it. Um, <clears throat> image galleries, all the all the tra- tracers and tealers, an introduction by the director, writers, uh, the original cut of the film is included as well, and then bloopers that strangely didn't come from the movie but came from the making of yes. documentary. Um, but yeah, very and a uh, bu- insert booklet as well. So and this is a solid package for a half-assed movie. But yeah. but remember, you know. kids, if you are one day if you are making a shitty movie, shoot lots and lots of video and take lots and lots of stills because one day <laughs> Arrow or Vinegar Syndrome or some Somebody. other label could pack it into a three-disc edition. Well, next up, we have another Arrow horror release. This one uh, hails from 1981, and even though technically it's an Italian movie, it was made completely in America with American actors and American everybody, uh, except for the director, of course, Ovidio G. Asinitis. I'm not kidding. That's what his name is. Asinitis who's well-known for tons and tons of B-horror films that he was involved in, including co-directing with James Cameron, Piranha 2, The Spawning. Big deal, quite there. I, I think he was hired after they realized that Jim Cameron was actually trying to make a good movie, and they was like, "Wow, we're never going to be finished on schedule. Let's bring this guy in who can bring who can just get crap done fast." He came in. He uh, came up with the story for The Visitor, which uh, Alamo Drafthouse Films released yeah. like about a year or so ago. But anyway, this also film Mad Ash you may have also seen in the past by the title "There Was a Little Girl" or "And When She Was Bad." Um, it is definitely one of those video nasty films, although you'll be hard-pressed to figure out why until the last 20 minutes or so, where you're like, Jesus Christ, where it gets really nasty. But it follows Julia, who's a young school uh, teacher for uh, deaf children. She lives in Georgia. She has these weird memories and flashbacks where she was scarred by her her very sadistic twin sister, Mary. Um, And the whole film, you're kind of like, well, what the fuck happened to Mary? What's going on with Mary? Um... Her uncle is a local Catholic priest, James, and he's like, well, you're going to have to – you have to come to terms with her. Uh, and Mary has a severe skin ins- disease. She's totally insane in a mental institution. Um, and Mary vows to make Julia suffer as she had suffered. As their birthday approaches, a strange Rottweiler is killing people around the area and, and people who Julia knows – and the only tie seems to be one line where Julia says, yeah, she used to, she had this horrible dog and she would torment me with this dog. And you're like, yeah, that dog would be dead now probably. But still, regardless, they're like, oh, it's the Satan dog. But someone else seems to be killing people too. And you're like, well, if Mary's in the insane asylum, who the fuck is actually killing people, right? And so thus the mystery of the film, such as it is. Yeah, this is one of those movies where there's only five characters, so you kind of know who it's going to be. And when it is revealed who the real murderer or murderers is are, uh, it's really not that compelling. I actually thought that uh, considering the, this film's provenance, it's vintage, uh, they do a really good job of making it look good on the screen. It looks better than it probably ever has been. 
Uh, but it's really not very compelling. It's not no. very scary. It has a few bits of gore towards the end, as you mentioned. But I really like so the, fake. I really like the ending. It's just yeah. getting there, and the ending is very reminiscent of a much better '80s slasher film called Happy Birthday to right. Me, and which is this is basically a ripoff. I yeah. mean, Asinatus was kind of famous for taking, oh, that that movie did well. Let's do something like that. I'm not sure if that came out before or after this. To uh, be honest, so you know, probably. I, I think after, they actually, actually. mentioned that it, it, somewhere in the special features but, that that was an influence. You know, as well, there's a lot of Giallo influence here, and obviously it's not as done as well as the classic Giallos, but it's very evident that this is an Italian director through that stuff. Well, they wanted to make an American-style slasher, but they really didn't know how to do it, and I think they ended up falling back on just sort of their own, their old Giallo instincts. Mm -hmm. This is a slasher film that only features adults. Uh, there's a few kids, one of whom does get murdered. Yeah, the uh, kid gets screen. murdered by a dog, and thank goodness they don't show it. Yeah, so. because they wouldn't have had the budget to do it well anyway. Uh, when we finally find out who the real culprit is, his motivation is so pointless and so ill-defined. There's, just yeah, like, and there's only two people who it could be really seriously, where yeah. reasonably, and, and it seems pretty clear but, which but one it is. But the actor does commit to it, and he has a lot of fun with the role, and the actors who apparently... Uh, uh, didn't ever start at anything else. I thought she was likable in this. Yeah, you know? Trish Everly. She's also just gorgeous. And she's beautiful. Oh my and you're gosh, like, why did whatever happen to her? Uh, but unfortunately, you know, some people make a movie and for whatever reason say, hey, not for me. Uh, she's not on any of the special features, but they do bring back a few members of the cast who talk fondly of this period, uh, including one character actor who uh, had a very long, lengthy career. She's got an interesting story and in how she ended up in Georgia. Yeah, Edith Ivey. Um, yeah. uh, but she's kind of like, why do you want to know about this fucking movie? Exactly. Uh, yeah, she's like, I was on Howdy Doody. I did all other kinds of things. I was in radio. I was in film. I was in musicals. But this is the movie you want to talk to me about. Uh, well, you know, Arrow gave her a paycheck. So hey, there you, you go. know. Uh, there's an audio comment. There's an interview with a cinematographer. Uh, there's a brief interview with, with the director. Um, alternative opening titles. It's not a lot, but it's there. And yeah. this is a movie that's always been on the radar for big slasher it's film fans. It's an okay slasher yeah. movie. It's not it's not hateful or anything. It's got some nice moments to it, but overall it just kind of rips and off. And the commentary is good by uh, the Hysteria Continues, which is a uh, podcast committed to just slasher films. And they have a good time talking about <laughs> a film that even they admit ain't, ain't terribly good. Fair enough. All right, next up we have The Unholy. This surprisingly is not being released by Arrow oh. or Shout Factory or anybody like that. Uh, this is Well, Vestron Video Collector Series, which is actually um, just kind of adopted now. Like Lionsgate bought Lionsgate Vestron. Bought. So this is really just Lionsgate releasing sure. it with a nostalgic stamp on it for yeah. Vestron and, Video. And if you were from that era, and you and I are from this period of time, when in the early days of home video... Vestron Video put out so much stuff. They had a lot of legitimate releases and you know, they put out a lot of crap, though, too, yeah. and a lot of stuff. Everything from Hills Have Eyes Well, there's so many companies like this yeah. in the 80s. In the era of the video cassette, everybody wanted a piece yeah. of that pie, and they were just putting out, sh- like, schlocky titles. Vestron got in early. Yeah. yeah like, 1981. Um, and they actually started producing their own films exclusively to release on their label, and The Unholy is one of those films that the, they actually put money into. And the story follows Ben Cross, who looked like he was going to be one of the next big yeah. things at this time. This he, was after he'd already, he didn't win an Oscar, but he was in an Oscar-winning film, which was Chariots of Fire. Right. Um, he would place Father Michael, who's just been appointed pastor of a church, after he survived a ridiculously impossible to survive fall, uh, trying to help us. Because uh, he's the chosen suicide. one. Um, 
And uh, he finds out what, what was it, happened to the, the previous priest here who we see in the beginning, a naked, unbelievably hot redhead woman oh, yeah. comes in and seduces him and then murders him. I'm we just saying like, okay, if Satan appeared in the form of a beautiful, hot, naked redhead. It might be hard to resist. I, I would probably do anything but, he or she But has. you're not a priest, so it wouldn't, I'm not, Satan yeah. wouldn't care. Hey, no he's harm, like, no foul. But Satan wants to seduce priests, as you do. So uh, he's trying to figure out why all these people are telling him he's this chosen one and this woman who keeps reappearing and all sorts of other creepy stuff and you have like a solid cast here of like oh, Hal God. Holbrook yeah. is the archbishop Ned Beatty plays a cop who's investigating it uh, there are lots of other really Trevor small Howard Trevor Howard Trevor Howard film performance yep uh, but I mean, overall, this is a this is like one of those. It's a very '80s American horror film yeah. where it's more focused on the titillation of the nudity and sex than it is even on yeah. the horror. And the horror is pretty fucking goofy. Oh, like God. it's all just a really lame exorcist afterthought, yeah. uh, as so many movies were at this point. I mean, it's entertaining for what it is, and there's some halfway decent practical work in the end with giant demon monsters and a sequence that's flashing back and forth from the red-haired woman like basically licking up and down Ben Cross's thighs to what that demon actually looks like which is a giant ugly thing with a a nicely animatronic tongue coming out and licking on him. Except for when it's trying to walk on all fours and it looks like a really horrible uh, two-man horse. Uh, (laughs) The one interesting thing about this video is the uh, on special features they actually talk about uh, there's an extended little featurette about the original designer of the special effects, who was a kid at the time. He was like 19, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. So he's like writing to, you know, you know, basically, you know, everybody in Hollywood, like Rick Dick Smith and you know, Rob Bottin going, how should I do this? So like, all right, well, you want to talk to this guy and you can buy this from this. He had no idea how to pull off these effects. Uh, Jim Dykstra, who was the uh, visual effects supervisor, uh, also a guy who cut his teeth on Star Wars and other huge projects. He was working on it, too. So you would think these effects are going to be great, but they weren't. Uh, They weren't very well executed. It wasn't scary enough. It wasn't bloody enough. And so reshoots were called in with a brand new crew with a new director. And you so you get to actually see what that sequence originally looked like. And it's one of those weird moments where I don't know which I prefer because the designs for the first uh, sequence were better. Yeah. But the execution was better of the second in this, the new sequence. The, the designs just weren't as interesting. It, it's really not worth watching. Frankly. No. It's, I mean, unless you're, if, I mean, I, I'm really into naked hot redheads. Yeah. And like, this is one seriously naked hot redhead oh, in yeah. this who's naked a lot. And if that's your thing, I mean, shit, I probably, I love it now for reasons other than that, but I probably watched Life Force 10 times originally yeah, just because like, Matilda May was walking hey, around naked. Because back the whole then time. you didn't get full frontal nudity. Yeah. You had ever. to watch Showtime with your, like, the scrambled Showtime with your head to the it, side. Oh, you, know? you kids will never know what it was like. I think I saw a boob. No, I, it was there. For a second, I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, there's there's, it's a, silly. there's a lot of extras on here overall. Nothing really serious. I mean, a couple featurettes, a commentary with the director, isolated score uh, selections with an interview with the composer, uh, interview with the production designer and co-writer, um, uh, the the original ending with the optional audio commentary, uh, TV spots, radio spots, deck, 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 deck. Yeah, and yeah, I, I think this is for the the people who maybe remember this fondly when they were kids seeing it. Yeah. If you really have to go back and see how wrong you were, that it's not a very good movie but it is worth a laugh sure yeah and uh, again for a great cast that alone is is worth it okay so let's talk about some grown-up films oh yes finally and we're going to talk about the sense of an ending this is based on a very well-received novel by julian barnes the movie adaptation here came out in 2017 with 
positive but slightly mixed reviews. Yeah, I mean, I get enough. it. This is a complicated emotional story to tell for sure. And um, it's directed by Ritesh Batra. A uh, director who I was not terribly familiar with. I think he's primarily worked in Britain in television. Yeah, if he, I'm not mistaken. I think the Lunchbox he won a BAFTA for is his previous other big film, but I've never saw that. But either way, um, the idea here is that Jim Broadbent, who is decidedly our main character, plays an elderly divorcee. Um, <clears throat> Married formally to Harriet Walter, who he still has a relationship with, a, you know, a friendship with, although she seems a little more, okay, you don't have to come by every single day than, than he wants her to be. Um, he's clearly still kind of in love with her. but yeah, She's his best friend. And he's not always the best at doing the things he's supposed to do to take care of their daughter, who's currently very pregnant, Susie, played by Michelle Dockery. Uh, she's supposed to bring her to her prenatal birth, uh, birthing class and stuff like that. But he gets his letter earlier in the day that is from the estate of a, a deceased woman named Mrs. Sarah Ford, who was the mother of a former girlfriend he had met in the 60s when he was just a university student. Uh, he's left some money and some documents. Uh, and But the problem is the second document is still with his former girlfriend from back then, Veronica Ford, who yeah. is played by two different actresses, by Freya Maver as a young woman. Just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And Charlotte Rampling is the older version of her. The problem is, is that Charlotte Rampling, the older girl, does not want to give him this document. It's the diary of this other friend who committed suicide yeah. way back in the day. There was a and, love triangle. And this movie flashes back and forth between those two periods with a whole two totally different sets of uh, actors playing all the characters in them, older than younger. And it's really... It deals a lot with nostalgia and not remembering things exactly how they were, or maybe yeah. with a, a warm, rosy-tinted glow the when it wasn't warranted. Um, Emily Mortimer plays uh, Veronica's mom in a sort of like, you know, hot milf sort of fashion. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it's about this guy uncovering that, yes, things were not how he thought they were back from that period of time while still holding on fantasies of reconnecting with Veronica. Maybe the older Veronica will realize she was always wrong and she should have, she should never have left me. Um, yeah. and it, it's a fascinating performance. It is. And, and Broadbent is one of those actors who, you know, I like in everything. I mean, I've seen that guy for years. I mean, whether he's working really broadly in things like Moulin Rouge or, mm -hmm. or in Brazil, uh, he's one of those guys you always see in a supporting roles, occasionally gets something larger. I still think, for my money, uh, his work in Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy is the it's best phenomenal. thing he's ever done. It's so good. Uh, one of my favorite films of all time. But yeah, I, I pretty much watched Jim Broadbent do anything. But when we meet him, he is he is an actor who could be very broad, very big, he can very, be very Broadbent. And yes, <laughs> and here he is very internal. It's this other side of Jim Broadbent that we don't always get to see. Uh, when he gets to just be on screen and sort of live inside of this character, it's a very internal role. And as we find out, uh, as you said, uh, he had a, uh, a relationship in the past. There was a friend who had committed suicide. There was uh, the oh. possibility of a love triangle. Somebody felt betrayed. We don't need to go back to the plot. <laughs> he wrote a letter in the anger. My reason I point out all of this stuff is because the weakness of this film is because it presents us with all these little threads. But it does it in a very scattershot way. And it is, we're assured that we will eventually get to a resolution. When we finally do get that resolution, it is provided by a stranger who mm -hmm. is in no way a part of the story. But he gives the Broadbent character a piece of the puzzle that finally allows everything to fall into place. It's not, I was expecting some big, emotional, cathartic uh, conflict here. 
And instead, it's, it's a more of a quiet, oh, that's what happened. Because I'm surprised you actually thought that, because I felt all throughout this, this wasn't that type of film. I, this I doesn't feel yeah. like a thriller in the slightest. No, not a thriller in the sense, you know? but something where somebody was going to have a harsh word I mean, and say, let me tell you what really happened. The reveal is something that... I didn't find all that surprising considering some of the stuff we'd seen, but but I didn't guess it, and it made sense. It did. And for him, it just provides a sense of peace. And, and I feel like it does. It, and I thought it brings – I thought for me it brought brought good closure to yeah. the film. I really enjoyed this story. It's definitely too. a very grown-up movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's not for people who are like, you know, like, oh, I hate movies where I have to listen to people talking the whole time. It's yeah. about older people and life and growing older and just learning how to deal with your past. And But come see it for the performances, particularly Jim Broadbent's. Another quiet but and very adult film with oh, a lot yeah. of people talking, but that is exceptional, is France. Yes. Not like the country, like F-R-A-N-T-Z, which is actually the name of a deceased character here in the film yeah. who we only see in a few flashbacks, and generally speaking, not even speaking. Yeah. This is from director Francois Ozon, who's one of those guys who's just... You need to go back and examine his his filmography. Yeah. He has done some wonderful movies. I discovered him with Swimming Pool, which I, I thought think was that was the one most terrific. people have seen. That was got got him uh, really recognized abroad. And if you're familiar with any of Ozon's works, uh, he tends to have a he doesn't always do thrillers, but he has a way of dealing with uh, very frankly with sexuality, mm-hmm. intimacy, the human body. By his own admission, this is the most chaste film he's ever done. Oh, it is totally a very you know, un-Ozon type it, of it film. It feels like a different filmmaker, but he's that's partly because he is adapting uh, an Ernst Lubitsch film, mm-hmm. uh, which itself was based on an older uh, established play. Uh, written shortly after World War One. Yeah, and the story here follows Anna, played by Paula Beer, who is grieving over the uh, her fiance having died in World War One, and she's regularly leaving flowers at his grave. But then she sees a guy, a little skinny guy with a mustache, French dude, played by Pierre Nini, uh, Adrian, who's also leaving flowers at her grave. So she's uh, um, uh, uh, Anna is living with her fiance's old parents who've basically just adopted her at this point. They're yeah. all in deep and painful grieving together for him. Not even being totally clear what happened. Just knowing he's dead and they'll never get the body yeah. back. Um, but the, the when she realizes this guy is not just like, as the father says, I don't want to talk to any Frenchman ever. You all murdered my yeah. my son. But when the the guy reveals, well, I was friends with your son, yeah. and I just want to talk to all And they get you. to learn more about their son through this surrogate character. And they form this friendship, yeah. a very strong friendship. And even for, for uh, Anna's case, she starts feeling an attraction to him, yeah. you know, which is understandable under the circumstances. But and It becomes I really, a replacement for the missing friends. And this is just the first act, really. Yeah. Because the, a huge reveal comes along that changes right. the entire context right. of the dynamic between all these characters. And from there, it sort of reverses where instead of visiting, seeing, uh, um, I'm sorry, what's his name? Adrian visiting Germany and this family. We see Anna visiting France and trying to find him yeah. and discovering new things about what actually happened. And having expectations, perhaps right. a, more than a bit dashed. This is a, in a large part uh and it's hard to talk about this film in any substantive way without giving it away because uh, you you know this is actually my pick of the week, hmm. and uh, it almost wasn't, but you gave this to me at the last minute. It just barely squeaked in this week, and I'm so glad you did because I really found myself I told liking you. this film. <laughs> you know, you said it's good if you have time, watch it. I thought, okay, 
And Moetius is really good. I mean, let's just talk about how beautiful it looks. It's shot primarily in black and white, but it does at key moments go into this sort of beautiful old-style Technicolor at key moments during the narrative. Uh, you do have this amazing performance by Paula Beer, an actress who is, was 20 when she made this film. Mm-hmm. She'd only done maybe one or two things before. She's very new. Uh, but she is an amazing in this. She has this wonderful old school movie star quality uh, and has to carry so much of this picture. This is really a, a movie, I think, that's about the lies we tell others and ourselves, which may provide comfort to others, that yeah. allows others to heal, but also eats us up inside because we know the truth and how we deal with it. Uh, it's a it's a gorgeous movie. It's, it's so beautiful. beautifully shot. It's it's I'd say it's all in black and white. Ninety percent of it's in black and white, yeah. but there are sequences that go into color, yeah. which usually is when characters are feeling a sense of remembrance or yeah. or deep warmth. The film switches to color, and it's it's almost so subtle you don't notice it. Yeah, it, it's really gorgeous, and uh, you know, like you said, at some point there is a, a couple of reveals during this tale, and one of the interesting things about this movie, and you'll find out if you watch the special features. Uh, there's a brief, like, 17-minute Q&A uh, with uh, Ozone, and there's also a very thoughtful uh, essay in the booklet, uh, I believe written by uh, film critic Scott Tobias, that talks not only about Ozone's uh, film, and but its influences and what he did to change this story. Because Ozone, you know, said, unlike Lubitsch and uh, uh, Rostan, the playwright, uh, they, were writing a fi- they were writing a piece about World War One and its aftermath. Mm-hmm. And writing it at a time that would allow people to heal and figuring that, you know, hey, we had our... This was before World War One had a one attached to it. It was simply the war to end all wars or just the war. No one really thought, hey, we could do this again and it could be worse. Uh, Ozone, coming from a post-World War II uh, background, goes, you know what, I can't tell that same story. And he makes some very smart changes and inversions to the original tale to craft something that is very thoughtful, uh, very beautifully staged, wonderfully acted, and just highly recommended. And uh, there's a Q&A with the director, scenes in the premiere, about 13 minutes of deleted scenes, costumes, and light uh, tests, poster gallery. This is really a great film. Yeah. Okay, now we're going to go on to one of my other favorite movies this week, another very grown-up movie called Land of Mind. This was... A, a nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the 89th Academy Awards did not win, although arguably maybe it should, because this is just such a great Danish film, a Danish-German film. The idea being is that after World War II in Denmark, who was pretty fucking pissed at the Germans, as everyone was, they had a bunch of soldiers still prisoners, and they're like, here's the deal. You guys scattered landmines all over our fucking beaches. We're not going to clean that shit up, so we're going to take you guys, teach you how to clean la- clean landmines, and you're going to do it, despite the fact about a third of you in each group is going to get blowed yeah. the fuck up doing it. Yeah. And they weren't even always that nice about it. Sometimes they just said, hey, hold hands and walk in one direction. <laughs> yeah, very true. Um, and this follows the relationship between a group of them which are all like 17 year olds tops you know like maybe the oldest one looks like he's maybe 18 this is like at the end of the war and they had to conscript children practically to fight the war and this guy who is the sergeant who at first is like fuck all of you i really don't care about you until he starts gradually coming to terms with the fact that these are just children they didn't know what they were doing most of them probably 90 percent of this group did not want to go to war in the first place you know it was desperation and that that relationship is going to, like, 
make his life more difficult because what do you do? He can't let make them stop doing their job. And right. one after another, they're getting picked off by these mines. Yeah. And at first, he's like, "You don't need food. You don't need sleep. You yeah. don't work. I don't care." And as over time, you see, uh, this is a great performance by a, a gentleman by the name of Roland Muller as the sergeant, and who is our chief, our main character. Mm-hmm. And you will see him eventually warm to the boys. Initially, I thought it was perhaps a little too abrupt. Uh, but as we see in a very key moment later on, that there's an ambivalence there. That yeah. that truce, that temporary detente, uh, is a, you know it's fragile. But we do see that character develop. And frankly, uh, this is also this was my pick of the week. I, I'm still kind of going with Franz, but it's almost on an even. Uh, it's almost on a par. This is a great movie that if you just want to have your heart torn out and then have it your faith in humanity restored. Well worth watching. Yeah, a 17-minute featurette that comes with this, uh, an English-language uh, Q&A session that took place in L.A., um, uh, the, the theatrical trailer, that's about it. But um, it's this is a solid don't-miss war film that is incredibly tense yeah. all the way through. You really, I mean, who... This is the only film I can ever think of I've seen where I really feel for Nazis. Because yeah. <laughs> they're like, like I said, they're like 15 and it, they don't know is, what the fuck is going on. It is a film where, and if you watch that Q&A, the director flat out says, hey, you know, I wrote this during the European Syrian refugee crisis. What do you do when you have people that you just are willing to dehumanize and the dangers of that? Uh, France also covers some of that territory. True. You know, th- that they would make a really good double, double bill. Which leads me to our next film, which I would not put in a double bill with uh, Land of Mine. Another movie about landmines. Yeah, even though it's just called Mine. Mine. Yeah, it's also about landmines. Oh, it's about a landmine. A landmine. And this is a... Definitely a character piece for actor Army Hammer, who's really, really trying to prove that he can be a movie star and so far hasn't had the best of luck. I mean, he's been in some good movies, but never had a star-making turn. Hoping this little indie film would help, and the truth is, this ain't so good. And that's partially because... It turns into a weird sort of hallucinatory thing yeah. as this soldier who he's playing, uh, like a sniper, steps on a landmine, uh, as did his friend, and his friend blows the fuck up. He doesn't because he knows he's on a landmine, but he's trapped in the middle of the desert. He can't get through to his commanding base, and even when he manages to, they're like, we can't get there yeah, anytime we, yeah. soon. If you can hang out for 52 hours. Yeah, exactly. While and, with standing in one place. Meanwhile, things that may or may not be our hallucinations are happening around him. Him, including talking to his dead friend, a a, uh, a villager that comes and talks to him, um, various things that come off as very corny and not terribly well. You have to through. move on. Lots Every, of, lots you have of to take a step. Lots of flashbacks oh. as it pieces together what's going on with his relationship with his wife and his father, who apparently was abusive, and all this stuff that's just so terribly on the nose. He tries to be so pretentious, and it's a shame because Army Hammer is spends 80% of this movie standing in one spot, mm-hmm. acting all by himself, and he is fantastic in this. He, he is, is a, just not served by this script. He's a great actor. He just needs a new agent. Yeah. <laughs> this, well, he's an executive producer on this. I think yeah. he saw this and thought, oh, this is my one-man show. This is a It's a bad script, and it's not th- that well-directed either. Like I said, it's corny. This is like a 90s film. It's. It, I just can't can't really recommend mine very much. I know they were really promoting it, trying to get people to check it out, thinking they had something magical here, but it's not. There's a good movie, but it leans into platitudes and stupid tropes and just bullshit fortune cookie kind of self-help advice that is not a waste of anybody's time. So we will not spend too much time on that and move on to the latest Jackie Chan release, Railroad Tigers. Now, 
I have been on record as being not only one of the biggest fans of Jackie Chan movies, but also one of the biggest critics, especially in the last 20 years or so when he has been just schlocking them out. One out of every six or so Jackie Chan films, you're like, well, that's pretty good. Never really living up to the classics. And this one is no exception, except this is that one out of six where you're like, Hey, that no, was this pretty is, fun. This is solid. It's um, a fun retro adventure film. Yeah, it's um, directed by Ding Sheng, starring Jackie Chan and a huge ensemble cast of younger people. Yeah, which as, is the problem yeah, of this movie. But you could also say that's also what makes it work at the same time. They because make Chan can't carry this. No, he by, could have. I, he I don't, could have. I don't know if he could. He's like 63. <laughs> no, he doesn't have to carry it. You know, there's a know very smart idea to make an ensemble around Jackie Chan. Yeah. But they... It's too much. He's not the primary character, even though they act he, at first as if he, he is. is. But it's a bunch of guys in Southeast Asia who are during the time when Japan was during you know, the Chinese uh, yeah, Japanese occupation. Japanese occupation. And he, Jackie Chan, and his friends are a bunch of guys who do little stuff to they're rebel. Porters and railroad. Yeah, they're like they're doing little robberies of trains. But they're inspired by a guy who's part of the bigger group to actually do real damage. Who says? Like, I failed my mission. I got shot. So I need someone to deal with this giant bridge and blow it up. That will be the thing that makes all the difference. And all these guys go, you know what? You're right. We've been making these little pussy blows against them. We need to make the big one no matter what. And they all get together and they decide to do this big doomed men on a mission plan to take out this. But it's also done with a a lot of comedy. Oh, yeah. This is very lighthearted. Yeah. For a film that's like right from the beginning, like we're not all going to make it through this. It's definitely more of an action comedy in the very traditional traditional Jackie Chan sense, then it's not. Lots of slapstick, like uh, martial arts type stuff, some pretty impressive stunt work at points. And fortunately, unlike a lot of the more recent Chan stuff, it just keeps moving. It does keep moving, but my problem is this movie was too long. It was way too many characters. Every time a character is introduced, the fr- the frame freezes. Yeah, and, uh, sorry. yeah. They the do frame that. freezes, yeah. and they have a little cartoon version of that person, which makes their no name sense here. with their occupation and their catchphrase. I have, I have a feeling that was added in well after the fact yeah. by someone for the American release. And, and there's some good animated sequences in here, but I felt that it was there were times I was actually lost in what a story that really is quite simple and didn't need so many characters in it. But otherwise, it is a good, fun retro action. Uh, men on a mission. Let's blow up a train, kind of uh, stuff with some great uh, risible kind villains. It's one of those ones I would say don't try and sit down and watch it all at once. Break it up into two halves because I mean the plot is who cares and a weird framing you, device that makes no sense yeah. to me at all. You know everything you need to know about the plot because this is not really a plot driven movie. It's just an action movie. It's a silly action comedy that works more often than it doesn't, but it's by no means a classic. No. You're not going to see stunts in here or or action comedy sequences that rise. Rival Chan at his best, but it certainly is all stuff that's better than 90% of what people are doing yeah. in a lot of other action comedies these days. There's a decent amount. There's a bunch of small featurettes here, very EPK-ish, nothing yeah. really special. Um, most of them, like, if you, weird, it has a weird thing where when you start it, it immediately when one ends, it goes to the next one, huh. which I've never seen before and is kind of irritating. But, uh, yeah, Railroad Tigers, it's okay, but in a good way. And we'll finish out this week with, I'm sorry, my pick of the week. I know you didn't like it as much as I did, but I this is one of my favorite movies this year, is John Wick Chapter 2, which they're also for people who, I don't know anyone personally who has one, but if you got a 4K yeah. Ultra HD television, hey, these all it all comes with everything all in one package. With that, the Blu-ray, the digital version. It so, allows you to see that uh, Keanu Reeves is actually 50, because you can see that his one wrinkle. Yeah, right? 
right? Uh, yeah, when it gets too close to like the underside of his chin it's is like, when you're like, oh, he's got a waddle. There it is. <laughs> but he's in remarkably good shape. Yeah, his sure. waddle can kick your ass. I mean, this is a, uh, directed by one half of the team that directed the first John Wick. This is Chad Stahelski. There's actually, if you look back on the site, we did a great interview with this guy uh, months ago. He just... Total sweet over guy, as yeah. was his main stunt coordinator here, both of which have worked with Keanu Reeves yeah. a lot. Stokowski has been uh, Reeves' stunt double since The Matrix. Yeah. They've known each other for 20 years They're, and just have a great relationship. There's a whole feature on, on here about just how just watching them, you can tell what good friends they are. That yeah. they finish each other's sentences and yeah. shit. These are total. I have never seen Keanu Reeves <laughs> so engaged. I mean, as not just as an actor, but like even the press material. He and just all the hours and months of training this guy loves doing this and it's a shame in a way that it took this long when you look at his career mm-hmm. whether whether you like him or not whether whatever you think of his limitations as a performer He's got a pretty broad range of films. Maybe not yeah. a broad range as an actor. He may be better at the action stuff but than yeah, he is at the it acting It took somebody stuff. 50 years ago, shit, we should have just been making John Wick films all these years. Gee, strangely, he, he's never been in dramas a particularly good protagonist, but he makes a great villain. Yeah. Whenever they have him playing like a real shit heel, he's really good at yeah. it. Yeah. Like, he was one of the only things I liked about the Neon Demon playing like the scummy club owner in it. Uh, you know, I mean, and in The Gift it. by Sam Raimi. He, he was plays good the, the abusive husband in or there. When he he was in, you know, was it a, a, a much ado about nothing, which they, which was a Shakespeare adaptation with Brana cast him in, and then had was wise enough to cut out ninety percent of his words and just left him with the line, "I am a man of few words." Boom! That's how you solve Keanu Reeves not being able to li- deliver blank verse. But honestly, this is this series is the Matrix for people who aren't that into science fiction because it's that same idea of like just incredibly choreographed action sequences. Um, People essentially being superhuman in their abilities yeah. and a whole world around it existing underneath the layer of our own that has like levels like an onion that keep yeah. going and characters who seem like something out of a fantasy novel, except they're all a archive of assassins, including the, now is, introducing yeah. the homeless people secret yeah. assassin world who aren't who aren't loyal to anyone, yeah. you know, led by. Really nice to see him again, Lawrence Fishburne, working yeah. with you know Keanu Reeves. Reeves. They Glad they resisted the temptation to throw in a Matrix joke. They, that, yeah, <laughs> that was wise. This is you know I, I didn't dislike this movie. I really liked it. I liked the, John, the first John Wick film as well. Uh, this is a pretty standard uh, in terms of its plot. It's a pretty standard revenge thriller. What makes this uh, better than most, what elevates the material, is you have a committed performance by Reeves, and you have this really strange, unusual piece of world building around him. Mm-hmm. That's what sets this apart. Well, that and the extensive and exhausting fight choreography. Work. And in this movie, and not in the last one, car choreography. There's yeah. some car stunts in here in the first sequence oh, no. that are like, wow! <laughs> these, these are guys who, this is one of those rare cases when you allow guys who actually know what they're doing... Mm-hmm. Say, you know what? You guys are really good at stunt work. Why don't you do a movie about stunt work and use everything you can to make Keanu Reeves kill people? <laughs> Cars, pencils, glasses, you know, anything lying around, fists, knives, anything is a weapon in this guy's hand. And you actually get to see choreographed stunts. How many times have I seen like a special feature on some action movie? They're like, oh yeah, we trained for three months, so we inter- we choreographed this, you know, so precisely. And then when it's shot, it's shot from 32 different angles and then cut, you know, every two seconds, and it's all done in medium close-ups. It's like it doesn't matter if they can do a fight from beginning to end; it's all piecemeal. These guys 
love the act of action. Just seeing people act on stick green physically and they allow it to be captured in long fluid takes so we can actually appreciate all the work that went into those shots. Now, pure action fans, I've heard some criticisms. They're like, well, the middle kind of sags. And I'm like, yeah, only if you have no interest in the really rich fantasy world they're building here that I thought was absolutely fascinating. I loved watching all the details of it, which are, you know, constantly coming new levels of it meeting new characters in this secret world of assassins it's so rich they've even they're they're working now on a television show spinoff about oh the hotel goodness. chain called the continental to be called the continental yeah. that which was is, one of my only kind of nitpicks about this movie really at the end it was like is everybody in new york a fucking assassin yes. or criminal because it's like you've clearly never been of, to new york uh, a few times <laughs> but you know what the thing is most of them aren't secret about it they'll just tell you i'm gonna kill you they're not in disguise you know, it, it's one of the most – this is like a one-horse town and there's 8,000 blacksmiths who live in it. How True. many people need to be get hit in this town? Well, I mean, to be fair, they were centering because they were coming after John Wick. That's true. So too. they were coming from all over. Yeah. It's, so, a, it's an assassin convention. Yeah, pretty much. Um, now, we if you want to hear more about the movie and what we thought about it, we had a whole crew that did the yeah. theatrical review you can listen to. This Blu-ray, actually, one of the reasons this is my pick of the week isn't just so much because of just how much I love the film. In fact, originally I was going to make Land of Mine because I just think that's a phenomenal movie that everyone should see and I thought a lot of people had already seen this but after I saw the selection of action uh, of uh, extra features here I was like okay this is my pick of the week because it's just they don't fuck around there's so much good stuff in here they go through every single aspect of the making of this film of the uh, the, the, how they came up with the concept of all the weapons that he uses Um, there's little goofy stuff in here too there's a kill count thing which I was like okay well there's a thing it's, it's like three minutes where it's like oh it's a kill count of the people he killed except it's not really it starts like an hour into the film and you're like why didn't they have that I've seen this before in other Blu-rays why didn't they have an option where you could put on a kill count as you watch the movie movie that keeps adding to the ticker that would have been kind of cool and there's also one of the funniest movie parodies I saw this year I'm so glad they got the rights to put it on here called Dog Wick which is what if John Wick had died in the first movie and the dog had survived and then the dog came out back for revenge it's just a little terrier it's fucking hysterical it's like a minute and a half long totally worth it but anyway that brings us to the end of this week's Digital Noise and I would like to thank my partner in crime uh, marco you're the best marco thanks oh, for doing thank so much work for the site lately and coming out for all sorts of stuff oh well you know it's a uh, man's got to do what a man's got to do <laughs> yes he does i'm glad that is on your list of manly duties my manly man duties watch uh, more movies as well <laughs> watch you, bambi if you missed it there's very recently we had one with joe a digital noise with joe as well with more titles and we're gonna try as fast as we can to get back i'll have another one with joe coming up with hopefully in about a week and a half doing the best i can a lot of stuff on my plate this week but anyway thanks so much for listening and uh let us know if there's anything that we've been missing that maybe we should be covering because sometimes it's hard to keep track. Oneofus.net has been your one-stop shop for all things geek for years. But there's a side to them many of you have never heard. The subscription side. Subscribe and listen to great podcasts like The Breakfast Pub, The Original Gentleman, and the Watch a Movie With Us series. Head on over to oneofus.net and don't forget your towel. 